Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. Today we will talk about key things to understand contemporary Ukraine. We will try to analyze seven things which help you understand contemporary Ukraine. My name is Vladimir Yermolnik. I'm a chief editor of ukraineworld.org. I'm joined by Tatiana Harkova, who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Hello, Tanya. Hello. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We spent a big amount of your support, of your donations to help people affected by this war, also to help Ukrainian resistance. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the biggest and oldest Ukrainian media NGOs. So, uh, seven things which uh, help us understand contemporary Ukraine. Let's try to analyze them. We just made a kind of a... Uh, a list, right? And the first thing that comes into into the mind is the, 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 the idea of decentralization. By the idea of decentralization, I understand that Ukraine uh, cannot be uh, understood as a centralized country, as probably some other countries um, can be understood in this way. Ukraine is very decentralized. It's kind of a, has different regional poles. We can talk about Kyiv, but we can talk about Kharkiv, we can talk about Odessa, Lviv, Dnipro, Mykolaiv, uh, I don't know what, Chernivtsi. Each of these towns, each of these cities will be very specific. What do you think? Yes, indeed. And even politically, we do know about this reform of decentralization, which started back in 2015 or 16. If we are not mistaken, it was an idea against corruption. But in a way, we can speak about multiple cultures in different regions of Ukraine and multiple attitudes towards power as well in different um, different uh, regions. And this was maybe one of the key, um, key issues which helped Ukraine to resist during this war as well, because uh, each city which resisted, like Kharkiv and Kyiv, they had their own forces to... to to resist and at the same time I'm frequently asked, for example, by foreign journalists, how do the state, how does Ukrainian state help, uh, for example, internally displaced people? And uh, at the first seconds, I just don't know what to reply because normally this is local power, local authorities who help these people. So if you go to Lviv, you'll address your issues to mayor of the city and you'll see, for example, people people providing you schools to sleep or any 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 kind of humanitarian aid and they are local people and local volunteers. That's why when you travel into Ukraine, what is important is to know local people. You cannot judge about situation in Kharkiv being in Kyiv. You cannot judge about situation if you don't have a proper net network in Odessa. So networks are everywhere, so you are to know people, I mean, namely military, but also volunteers, uh, what we call active people, any kind of activists and civil society. Uh, these are different approaches, different uh, languages even. When, when we travel, we observe different attitudes in different cities. So this is important uh, in multi, I would not say cultural, but multi- um, uh, just different different attitudes to everything, and politically, it's also very much democratic. Because when you when we speak about decentralized state, we are speaking about state which is not uh, like uh, ordered uh, from from the top. So it's uh, uh, it's it's a kind of communications bottom up communication, bottom up. Uh, 
uh, structure of the country. And that's why uh, we are frequently astonished saying that when we asked what kind of support for us Ukrainians was the fact, for example, that the lead of the country, Zelensky, didn't leave the country on the 24th of February. And our response is, is quite clear for us. This is not the question to address only to the president because Sure enough, it will be kind of dis- discouragement for people if president leaves, but we will still be there. So um, local power, local mayors will be still in place and local people will be still here to resist. So the, you cannot rule Ukraine by giving orders from the top. Exactly. And when you travel across Ukraine, you see this resistance, you see the territorial defense in each village, you see, for example, the help Uh, to the uh, displaced persons uh, in e- each particular village organized by local authorities. Uh, really, if you, for example, in the first weeks when you was traveling from Kiev or fleeing the war from the uh, eastern Ukraine, you would go to kind of uh, maybe Vinnytsia or towns in the Vinnytsia region and you will face a f- remarkable situation when everybody, everything is organized to help you when uh, you, uh, they they bring you for example to a school school just to re- remade in in the form of a shelter for the uh, refugees for the people who are seeking the uh, the asylum and uh, yeah this is all done by 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 the local but i remember for example maybe the last thing to say here uh, important thing i remember sociological polls before the revolution of dignity in 2014 Uh, when people before that date, before 2014 at least, they had much stronger what, what what you call regional identity. So when people were asked, how do you identify yourself? People were saying, oh, I'm a kind of, um, I live in Poltava or I live in Kiev, I live in Kharkiv. So I am from that region. And that became became more general after the revolution of identity. So people were starting to say about themselves, we are Ukrainians first, and then but we are coming from that and that region. Because In this this decentralization, there is also several risks, as we've seen in Donbass. For example, Putin today is talking about people of Donbass, like as if like ethnicity, I don't know, kind of different people, separate people existed in Donbass, if not not like a mix of Ukrainians, Russians and other people, so people of Donbass. So mm, there are some dangers of that as well in this diversity. But at the same time, this uh, sentiment, this feeling of unity, of being Ukrainian, it comes first from your regional identity. And then you transcend it in a kind of uh, identity on a national level. I would state it like that. Yes, yes. And uh, each city, for example, Odessa is... uh Kind of a world apart, right? And Lviv is a is a very specific. You, you will never confuse Lviv and Odessa, or Kharkiv, or Dnipro, or Zaporizhia. They are very different. Or Vinnytsia, very different with with very specific sense of their regional identity. For example, in Dnipro you have this very vivid frontier identity. In Kharkiv, of course, the the history of Kharkiv culture. Uh, in Odessa, obviously, well, you, you can have a Jewish history, but also you can have a European history, European architecture, French influences, and etc. The second, the second important element is the language. It's something that uh, people outside of Ukraine 
start understanding a little bit, but maybe not, not still not ideally. What can we say about the language issue in Ukraine? Well, this is a huge issue about language because because during centuries there were a lot of uh, foreigners were mixing up or not distinguishing between Russian and Ukrainian, stating that Ukrainian language was something like a dialect from Russian language, which is not true at all. So uh, Ukrainian language is unique language. It is very much different from Russian. Uh, as an example, Russians, when we speak in Ukrainian, they don't understand much. But we, if we, for example, hear U- Belarusians talk, so we understand a lot. Uh, and uh, vice versa, when Belarusians li- listen to us, they do understand quite a lot of things. But at the same time, inside Ukrainian language, you have a multitude of dialects as well. Maybe not dialects, but they, I would call it accents. If you t- travel to Poltava... And if you are fluent in, in Ukrainian, you will never mix Poltava, Poltava language, Poltava Ukrainian with Lviv Ukrainian. This is a kind of a different accent. And uh, if you move to Kharkiv, Kharkiv is a, a bilingual city, so many people still speak Russian in Kharkiv because it's close close to Russia because of some historical factors like family ties and uh, Russification and all that stuff. But they, uh, their Ukrainian is is quite clear and it's extremely different from, from what you hear in Poltava, for example. And um, this is true for, for the whole Ukraine. In each region you have the different manner to speak, so it proved that Ukrainian is a language because it already has in, inside many accents, many manners, not talking about Surzik. Surzik, this uh, mix of uh, uh, Russian and Ukrainian, and with a lot of irregularities inside, it's not a literal language, so but it's widely used uh, everywhere in Ukraine. Uh, normally in uh, in in cities, but in villages as well. So Surjik is also a, a quite interesting phenomena. There are a few things which should be avoided when you think about languages in Ukraine. The first thing is that you perceive this language group as a kind of a homogeneous groups. Sometimes we are asked, so what do you do about Russian-speaking minority? And this is this uh, uh, question doesn't make sense for Ukrainians because what is a Russian-speaking minority? Everybody here speaks Russian, and everybody almost everybody, uh, yeah. almost everybody, and almost everybody here speaks Ukrainian. Uh, people like us, for example, we were born and raised ra- rather in a Russian-speaking family, but families. But now we mostly speak Ukrainian, but we can switch into Russian. Uh, and that's it. So how you define Russian-speaking minority, basically there is no such thing. We Because can... Russian, this is not a language of a minority, it is an imperial language. So a language of empire, which was here from, for a couple of centuries, and uh, uh, it is a direct result of this Russification and the, 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 the will of the Russia, Russia empire to erase any trace of Ukrainian. So this is not a, this is not a language which is proper to a kind of a group of people, but it is, it is imperial language and we know a lot of stories, for example, for generations of our parents who were, for example, born in Ukrainian families and they spoke Ukrainian during their childhood, but then they switched to, to Russian because Russian was a kind of language of culture, language of education, language for career, language for communist party, etc., etc. And then, so now, now it is different, so everybody understands Russian here in Ukraine, but we see that now 
almost everybody, maybe for a small exception of people who are quite old now and they lived all their lives in during Soviet times and they are maybe old enough to, to learn and they are unable to learn uh, 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 Ukrainian. But for kids who started, so we are, Ukraine is an independent country starting uh, for 30 years already. And during these 30 years, we had... Uh, millions of kids who went to Ukrainian speaking schools so because education is in Ukrainian for 30 years already so there is nobody in Ukraine who doesn't understand uh, Ukrainian this is m simply impossible so just to continue this this idea you cannot find a russian speaking ghetto or you cannot find a ukrainian speaking ghetto right so probably in the west people speak more ukrainian in the east they, they speak more russian but it's not like in some other countries where this language uh, language identifies with a certain very clear cut group right the, it's not the case in ukrainian and interestingly on ukrainian television Uh, very often before this invasion, we, we have seen a situation when an anchorman speaks Ukrainian, the guests are speaking Russian. Now we have some programs, especially those programs in which uh, people are trying to respond to Russian propaganda, in which the presenter herself speaks both Ukrainian and Russian, like one phrase in Ukrainian and another phrase in Russian. And we see, we have seen from the President Zelensky that he's from the Russian-speaking uh, family and Russian-speaking region, but he shifted quite quite well into Ukraine. And quite quickly. Quite quickly. Now he kind of uh, sometimes uh, forgets the Russian words, but he also, in very often in his speeches, he turns into Russian either to address Russians or to show that he's fluent in Russian. The next, the next uh, trade, the next thing to understand, uh, I would, we would call it consolidation. By this, we mean that Ukraine would have been described like some, maybe even 10 years ago in 2012, when Yanukovych was still in power, as a, a polarized country, like a typical right now for the United States, for Britain, for, for Poland. And uh, it was interesting that in the years 2000, in the decade 2000, uh, people were saying, okay, look at Poland, how consolidated they are. They are so consolidated around EU membership. So why Ukraine is not consolidated? Because we had a split country. Half, uh, like 30% would be for EU membership, 30% for um, uh, integration with Russia, and 30% undefined. Uh, and uh, and now it's not the case. Uh, so now it's like vice versa. We see Poland more or less polarized, right? But Ukraine uh, in increasingly consolidated. I guess, yeah, I absolutely agree with you here on this point. So it was, in a way, it was kind of uh, artificial division in, in foreign press and foreign audience. We frequently uh, meet this attitude about Eastern Ukraine and Western Ukraine. But still, uh, before the revolution of dignity, there were uh, clear two political camps So Yanukovych clan somewhere in the east and some others democratic orange, uh, call them orange political forces, democratic political forces, which were leaning to the west. But what happened in 2014, there was the first Russia's aggression against Ukraine. So with the annexation of Crimea, with the occupation of Donbass, so it was the first, first stage of this consolidation because people in Kharkiv, which resisted to that attempt to be, to be uh, occupied, 
right. Uh, they suddenly understood that they were Ukrainians and that they didn't want to live in this kind of uh, ghetto like Donbass and Lugansk. So it was a kind of the first uh, failure of this Russian or pro-Russian political project. So And political forces, which were still present in the country after 2014, they had uh, around 15% of support, maybe from 10 to 15% of support, but no more than that. What's happening now? Because of this second wave of aggression, the full-scale invasion of Russia, this is almost 100%, maybe 90 Five, 96% of people who do understand what does it mean to be under that, that attack. So everybody is against Russia. So there's no future for any kind of pro-Russian political project here. And this is not no surprise that this political party, they are banned, simply banned, simply cancelled here in Ukraine. There is no place for them. And my guess is that maybe there will be no place for them during decades after the war will end. So. Yes. And uh, and this is also very very interesting trend. It doesn't mean that it will last forever, but it's very interesting trend. Another thing which we stress is the relation between nation and empire. So our understanding of Ukraine right now is that it is a part of the former empires, which try to define itself as a nation state. Nation state, uh, not a ethnic nation, but political nation, but nation in a sense that it unifies people living on this territory, and this state doesn't really pretend on other territories of other countries, doesn't see itself as a kind of a eternally enlarging, whereas Russia sees itself as eternally enlarging. Uh, my metaphor is that Ukraine has, in, in the idea of Ukraine, has clear-cut borders, and plurality of centers. So the center is nowhere, but there is a clear-cut ra radius borders. Russia has a clear center, Moscow, and then no, no defined borders, right? So and therefore it always tries to expand. And this is idea, its its very idea, its very political idea is to expand. And I think this is something that is very important to understand. In this yeah, I do like this metaphor of being fixed, fixed center, but never ending, never ending uh, country. By the way. Uh, recently, Putin has uh, directly uh, quoted and presented himself as uh, Peter the First. So he was talking about. Uh, so this is maybe so sort of false interpretation of what's happening with this special military operation. Because in the beginning he was talking about kind of demilitarization, denazification. Later he was talking about liberation of the people of Donbass, something like that. And now last week he pronounced that and posted quite clearly about that they are getting back territories like Peter the Grand Peter I did. So he's presenting himself as a uh, leader of this uh, empire, in fact. And uh, so this is a kind of Eidos, kind of a, uh, ideal for contemporary Russia. And it's clear enough for everybody this, this, this project, this vision is uh, outdated. They, there is no place for empires in in modern world, so this is off. This over. This this story is completely over. Let's hope. Let's hope at least. But empires sometimes come back, and we see that uh, they come back very violently. We have three more points, but very little time. So let's let's try to mention them quickly, uh, but maybe develop, elaborate on them 
uh, a bit later. One of the elements we are keep uh, keep on being asked is oligarchs, and uh, oligarchs is a separate topic. We will cover it in in one of our of our uh, next podcasts, I think. But one thing. I would like to stress here is that oligarchs, of course, it is bad because it's a private interest trying to capture the public uh, public sphere in public good. And of course, Ukraine has to fight against oligarchs and uh, gradually the role, I think gradually the role of oligarchs is diminishing. With Zelensky, it's probably also diminishing. But uh, oligarchs played a positive role also in, in Ukraine, and that makes a difference with Belarus and with Russia, because oligarchs have balanced the power of the center, has uh, have in these decades have not let the center to expand and to make an authoritarian state like in Belarus and in Russia. And uh, in a way, oligarchs, some of the oligarchs also backed the revolutions, the Orange Revolution, the Euromaidan, and when one of these oligarchs, Mr. Yanukovych, uh, be, uh, wanted to become their oligarch, the main oligarchs, he was ousted by the people, of course, but also by certain big business in Ukraine. So oligarchs are a part, a part of our political culture. So oligarchs is a kind of a they ensure this plurality, right? And it's 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 important thing to understand. Uh, we don't kind of approve this existence, but we understand that they played kind of an interesting role. Another point is about generations, yeah? So generations are important in, uh, in Ukraine, and uh, we see a huge difference between different generations because generations who lived in Soviet Union and are still here, they are around... Uh, 50, 60, 70 years old. But then comes the generation whose childhood, like, for example, both of us, we were born in Soviet Union, but we uh, we were teenagers when Soviet Union collapsed. So our maturity came in years of independence. And there are a lot of people, I mean, over 18 years, 18 years old, so... So adults, young adults who were born in independent Ukraine, and this is a different sort of people because they never knew what was Ukrainian, uh, what the Soviet Union looked like, and they had a different culture and different approach to, to what's happening. They don't know this uh, big empire and Soviet life. So this uh, variety, this diversity of generations is also to take into consideration when you travel across the country and it is extremely clear in sociological polls for example when you ask people about about their political choices about their sympathies for europe or for russia you are almost sure if you meet somebody young somebody in the big city somebody dynamic somebody with good education it's it's almost for sure he's somebody or she's somebody pro-european pro-democratic etc an important thing is that the power was also going along these generational changes and that also makes a difference with Russia and Belarus where the elites uh, have come to power in the 90s and they just secured the place and they didn't move. They didn't move. Therefore, we have this old man in, uh, in Russia and Belarus while in Ukraine every new president was younger. younger. <laughs> Somehow younger. Uh, well, uh, younger or maybe if, if not that much younger but bringing younger people and here, for example, when, when we see a president which, which, who was 41, of course, he would uh, draw even younger people to, to power. Of course, this is also having its drawbacks, but it brings this social dynamic uh, much faster. And the last point we would like to raise is the point of 
people versus power. In Ukraine, in contemporary Ukraine, and this is also our political tradition, uh, people have people is the or society is a equal force to power, and power has never uh, never tries if it if it challenges people if it tries to kind of a make authoritarian regime it it is also faces a huge uh, huge strike striking back by the people. And this why exactly, for example, there is no choice for Volodymyr Zelensky to change, um, to change the history and to, for example, to surrender or just to say let's make a ceasefire or something in this war, because he knows that Ukrainian people will resist until the end. So unfortunately, unfortunately for him, he has no place for manoeuvre, no place for political change, because uh, he knows that uh, he will be out of the game as soon as he started talking about that. Yeah, and this is also makes Ukraine a, a, a truly democratic country where the demos, the people, is a, is a real subject of politics. That's what makes Ukraine strong. So these are seven things to understand contemporary Ukraine. Of course, there are much more, but we just picked up seven things. Decentralization, uh, language, which is much more liquid, fluid than in other countries, maybe in other multilingual countries. Uh, consolidation, nation versus empire, oligarchs and their ambiguous role, uh, generations and the way how the change of generations influence the, the dynamics of politics, and people versus power. This was Explaining Ukraine podcast. My name is Vladimir Yermolenko. I talk to Tetyana Harkova, Ukraine Crisis Media Center and Internews Ukraine. Follow us on social networks, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you like. You can also support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Ukraine World. We spend a big amount of your support to help people affected by this war and to help Ukrainian resistance. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.